fact that it's inspired, it is sufficient for faith and practice. And so we were wondering, in a situation like ours, where we say we are committed to the Bible, is having creeds tantamount to double speak? Because on one hand you're saying, I believe scripture is sufficient, and yet on the other hand, you have creeds, you have catechisms, you have confessions. So that basically is to remind us of some of the things that uh, we were looking at last time. Thank you. Thank you, Alu. And uh, just to again... Ref- Thanks. So basically, we were asking ourselves, do creeds infringe upon the sole authority of the Bible? Do creeds infringe upon Christian liberty? Do creeds rival or challenge the supreme authority of Scripture? Do creeds undermine the authority of Scripture? And we were saying no especially as we think about the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and others, the Westminster, the Savoy Declaration, in many ways, the Nicene Creed, these, these things do not necessarily, they are not infallible, but they do not necessarily infringe, rival, uh, undermine Scripture. And we said, for example, with regard to the first one, when we say that Scripture is our sole authority, we are saying Scripture is our sole divine authority. Scripture itself institutes other authorities outside itself. For example, it does institute the authority in the home. It does institute authority at work. It does institute authority in the church. It institutes authority in the state. So if President Uhuru Kenyatta today decided to require us to register for Huduma number, you will not ask him chapter what, verse what of the Bible, isn't it? He doesn't have to find a verse in Scripture allowing him to require you and I as citizens under his government to register for census. He requires it, and we do it as Christians, submitting ourselves to that authority because God has instituted him. We will not necessarily in such a case say he is infringing upon Scripture. Only where divine authority is attributed to creeds and traditions will we say it is infringing upon the authority of Scripture. And then on the issue of does confessions, creeds and catechisms, and I'll just call them creeds so that we defined that last time, on the issue of Christian liberty, do they infringe on Christian liberty? Yes, they could. But in as far as joining a church is voluntary, then it will not infringe upon your liberty. Because, for example, to join this church, we will tell you this is what we are committed to. This, it's put on the table. This is what we subscribe to. 
as a people. It's on our website. Okay? So, it does not necessarily, therefore, infringe your liberty. Does a confession rival the authority of, of Scripture? And the answer can be yes, but in the case of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's very clear. The confession itself says, so this is, this is from our website. We take the whole Bible 66, commonly received books of the Old and New Testament, as our confession of faith. And we say, although we accept no man-made confession as finally authoritative, we have received the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. That's in the website. And the 1689 Confession of Faith in paragraph 1, verse 10, talks about how it submits itself to the authority of Scripture. It says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. Sorry for the long sentence. That's Victorian English. They, they write that way. But, but it's basically saying there that the Holy Scripture is where final authority rests. Our confession of faith does not rival, it does not undermine, and it does not, as we've said, infringe the authority of Scripture. It does not undermine. It says clearly that in paragraph 16a, that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, and to which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. And we were asking ourselves towards the end of, of our discussion last time, do the statements, the passages of sufficiency of Scripture forbid pastors or Christians from putting the message of Scripture into their own words? And the answer is, is no. As a preacher, when I stand here, I'll take the words of Scripture, put them in my own words, and give them to you, and that is not equivalent to infringing the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. Because if we are saying a preacher infringes the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture by using his own words to preach, then, then we are saying we would not be allowed to preach as we do. We would not be allowed to even pray our own words. We would, uh, well, prayer, I correct myself. Because prayer is, you see there, an openness in terms of make your requests known to God. But in terms of preaching, we would be required to verbatim recite scripture. And we were just saying, when you squeeze an orange to get orange juice, you're not necessarily adding anything to the orange juice. You're just presenting it 
in a way that makes the juice available uh, in a different way, but it's the same orange juice. So we are building a case for the legitimacy of creeds in a context where our temptation would be to say, why, why do we wrestle with this thing? Why, why must we have creeds and confessions and uh, catechism? This is where we ended, and I, I brushed through this. It is self-contradictory, it's self-refuting to reject all confessions. There are those who say, no creed but scripture. And I'm, I'm saying there, and many others have done that better than me, that that person who says no creed but scripture has a creed, and their creed is being stated in that particular way. To be an anti-creedal person is self-contradictory. It can be even hypocritical. Those who reject creeds actually themselves have creeds. And uh, John Murray says, why should creedal confessions be restricted to the doctrine of Scripture? There are other doctrines just as essential as the doctrine of Scripture. If somebody came to you, a pacifist, who tells you, in the Sermon of the Mountain you are told, you know, if you are slapped on one cheek, give the other one. So, don't defend yourself. In fact, uh, the sixth commandment forbids us from taking life. Okay? How do you respond to them? With regard to, let me, let me narrow it down, with regard to the issue of capital punishment. So that's, that's, that's an issue I'm bringing up. Because to say, that as long as you agree on sufficiency of scripture, all is dealt with, then you begin realizing there are other essential doc doctrines that you need to handle. For example, that particular one that I'm bringing up, the place of capital punishment, when a pacifist tells you, uh, uh, Matthew 5 says, turn the other cheek, sixth commandment says, you shall not, shall not, murder, not kill, okay. <laughs> okay. How do we respond to such a person? You see where I'm coming from? You need, you need to straighten your theology, your theology in other areas apart from the doctrine of Scripture. And now that I've brought that up, or do I leave it for discussion after the service in our small kamkunjis? <laughs> Basically, God does institute uh, magistrates in Scripture, isn't it? God is the one who institutes capital punishment. God even does institute just war. When the, when the soldiers repented and were baptized during the time of John the Baptist, they are not told to stop being soldiers. Or are they? They are told to stop being corrupt. 
and uh, other things, Nehemiah, they build and they have a sword. And that's not a sword for, for capital punishment. That's a sword for just war. If you attack us, we have a right to fight. So you see in scripture pictures that would, uh, and Romans 13 makes it clear even in the New Testament that God has ordained the office of the magistrate as a terror to those who do wrong. And so whereas Romans 12 tells me vengeance is God's, he will repay, I'm not allowed to revenge, if I am a judge in a court and you are brought to me and, and I am told you stole and there is evidence beyond the threshold of doubt, it is my Christian responsibility to jail you. To say at that point that I'm not allowed would be an abdication of responsibility because my vocation at that point requires me to to exercise that authority on behalf of God who has ordained me to be there. And some of these things then are the fine things of our faith that confession should put down. Uh, I just picked one to interest you because there are many other areas of our faith. At times we remain so narrow with regard to our Christian life, and we become weak believers. Because one of you might be sensing a call to be an MCA, but, but you are struggling, and yet there is a place. Well, how about things like worshipping God with song? Those who are things debated, or marriage, or labor, or the Sabbath. Why does it become Sunday? Uh, rather than Saturday. And those are some of the things then that people have wrestled with over time. So in this, I've, I've tried to basically make a legal case for, for creeds. Now today, having seen the legal place for creeds, I want to go further and say something can be legal, but it's not necessary. Okay? But with creeds, I want to make a case for it is not just legal, it is necessary. You, you, it's not just a good thing to have, it is a must to have these things. And so I want to make a case for that. Is there any question on the issue of legality of creeds? Okay, so let's then think about the necessity of creeds. So, maybe before we go there, I just want to challenge us to see that it's easy to hide behind sola scriptura and say we don't need them, but anti-creedalism that reduces itself to a place where it dogmatically says that 
there must be no dogmas, is self-contradictory. You are saying with conviction that people must not have convictions. It's, it's self-contradictory. So, so, so that's, that's one thing. But the other thing is, is let's not fear creeds because of not being well instructed. Let's, let's love the Lord with all our minds. Is another application I would like to bring up. Let's, let's not fear creeds simply because we are uninstructed. I think another thing that I would say as a concluding application here with regard to legitimacy of confessions is at times when we see a hatred towards confessions, it could be because of sin. It could be because of unmortified attachment to personal liberty. It could be because of the sin of a sheer dislike for authority. A dislike for creeds could also be because of an unwillingness to learn from Christ's gift to the church over the historical period. Because the people who came, the creeds were not, as I said last time, they were not built by one person. So the Westminster Confession was first of all penned down by the Westminster Assembly. Brilliant minds gifted people from the Presbyterian background and they came together and they thought about things and they did not start from there. They had to go back to 300 BC and begin looking at what others had done in terms of penning down their beliefs. And then 15 years later, the Savoy, uh, the Congregationalists, the Puritan Congregationalists, who are struggling with with certain aspects of the Westminster Confession, looked at it and said, hey, this thing of having a bishop somewhere that is being responded to by all churches doesn't seem to be biblical. And so they believed in the local assembly. And so that then was introduced in the Savoy Declaration. And then the Baptists came later on and as they, they, they wrote down the London Baptist Confession, or the Baptist Confession of Faith, they built it on the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration. Very few passages are different. In fact, if you compare the Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, the difference, the big difference, would be in three areas. Uh, Pedobaptism, because the Baptists would believe you, you are baptized if you believe, not because you are a child of a believer. And they had a basis for that. They would cite places like uh, Acts where Philip uh, tells the Ethiopian eunuch, if you believe, then you'll be baptized. But the 
the Presbyterians would think about Act 1631, which talks about the jailer and stood, uh, he'd be baptized with his household. And so there are those, those things. So the, the Presbyterians and the Baptists would agree on many areas. The other thing they wouldn't agree on would be on, on church government. So we believe in the local assembly as opposed to having some head office somewhere that appoints pastors here. We believe that the picture we see in scripture is a local assembly where you have a responsibility before God, a solemn responsibility before God to recognize who is called by God to serve amongst you as a pastor and who is not. So that every three years you, brothers and sisters, know you have this solemn responsibility to reflect before God and make a decision on whether we are still called to pastor you or not. A responsibility for which you will give an account. And we then give you an opportunity to vote secretly between you and God, isn't it? So, so, so we, we believe in that and we also differ with regard to the Lord's Supper. But let's be careful that an unmotified attachment to personal liberty, a sheer dislike for authority, and an unwillingness to learn from Christ's gift in church history does not hinder us from embracing confessions. Let's think about necessity of confessions. I'm going to present four things that I think could be a case for why we need confessions. Our identity, our fundamental identity, I believe, demands that we have confessions. Simple honesty demands that we have confessions. If we are to expose error, we must have confessions. For the purpose of spiritual unity, and Christian fellowship, we must have confessions. Our fundamental identity. We believe that as a church, as a body of Christ, we are apostolic. And you'd see that in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, for example, would say, Ephesians 2.20 would say, let me start from verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone. Being the cornerstone, I, I beg your pardon. So there we have the apostles as a foundation for the household of God, the church. It's clear. In Revelation, it's clear. And in Matthew 16, the confession of Peter, it is clear. And by the way, when he talks about the apostles being foundation, therein you have a biblical case for secession 
of the revelatory gifts. Because if the apostles who are the greater gift were foundational, you don't lay several foundations, okay, and they have stopped, they have ceased to exist, then the lesser gifts would uh, arguably then have ceased. Um, what does it mean that the church is apostolic with regard to what I am saying here on the necessity of confessions? Let me make the concluding statement, then I defend it. One thing it means is that we must, not we may be, not we should be, but we must be confessional. If we are part of this foundation that is apostolic. The apostles were confessional. Why do I say the apostles were confessional? Basically to confess is to agree with So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God the Father says, this is my son. Okay? So God the Father says, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. God says that. God the Father says that concerning God the Son. In Matthew three seventeen, And then Peter comes into the scene. In Matthew sixteen fifteen to 18, He, the Lord Jesus, said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So upon this apostolic revelation, not upon Peter as a person, but upon this apostolic revelation, the Lord is going to build his church. And this church is going to be the church triumphant. Okay? The gates of hell shall not overpower it, needs to be seen as it is in the Bible. It doesn't mean as a church we are defending ourselves and the gates of hell are attacking us. Gates generally don't attack, isn't it? Gates are attacked. Are you seeing that? And the Lord is saying that we would attack the gates of Hades, and they would not be able to withstand us. But it is upon this confession of Peter, a confession that one has been revealed by God, flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but a confession that two is in agreement with what God the Father has said in Matthew 3 and verse 17. 
You go on in First John, in Matthew 10, 32 to 33. The Lord says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. The Father says through the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 2 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So Peter said the same thing as the Father about Jesus. And confessions then become valuable because they are the church's united official testimony to the truth. Peter and the other apostles are the foundations of the church. And one of the reasons why they would be foundations to the church is because they confess the truth about Jesus. In fact, one would be tempted to say the reason why the foundations for the church is because they confess. Because it is upon this revelation, this confession, that the Lord Jesus Christ says he would build his church. The church built on the apostle, apostles is also obliged to confess the truth about Jesus. In fact, recently, Brother Kahuri has taken us through the true church, and one of the things we saw in First Timothy 3.15 is that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So we are a pillar, we are a buttress, we are a guard for the truth. We are a pillar, and pillars generally hold up, isn't it? They support the truth. And, and so we are supposed then, if we are pillars of truth, we are supposed to uphold the truth upon the foundation of the apostles who upheld the truth. We are called a lampstand. The church is called a lampstand in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 and also Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. And a lampstand, basically, is like the pillar that supports the truth. It's a pillar that carries light, isn't it? And so the church, as a fundamental identity, is being called to uphold the truth. Our central duty as a church is to proclaim and bear witness to the truth in the context of errors, particular errors of each generation. At that particular time, the error was some were saying of the Lord Jesus that he is Elijah. Some were saying he is John the Baptist. In that particular space, where there were those particular errors, the apostles come forth and they become a lampstand. They become a pillar of truth. And like them, our fundamental identity as those who are a pillar and a buttress for truth 
is that we must uphold truth. We must defend truth. It is not enough to say I believe in Jesus when errors are being brought forth. If somebody asks you, what do you, what do you think about LGBTQ? And you say, I believe in Jesus. The words that come to my mind are not very pleasant words towards you. Because you are not helping with the situation. The situation then was someone saying he is a prophet. Others were saying he is Elijah. And the response, the upholding of truth, was such that it dealt specifically with that error. Likewise, in our time, we must be able to have confessions that clearly articulate what Scripture says, or rather what we see, believe Scripture says, in a way that it addresses the issues of our time. It is not enough that God has said it. It is not enough that the Holy Spirit has inspired it. That, those two things are beautiful, but they do not exonerate us. They do not exempt us from our responsibility to confess it. And to confess it in a way that deals with the issues at hand. So our fundamental identity if we are founded on the apostles, our fundamental identity requires that we be confessional. It makes it necessary. Yes, Eric. Yes, it must be. We must know the precepts, the principles in there. We must study it and be able to apply it in our lives. Any other thought, question, even contradiction? Because we are all learning and the talking head in front does not know everything. So feel free to even challenge some of these notions. Yes? We must confess it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So that, that last statement is there reverently. Please, please don't throw rocks at me. I say it reverently. Uh, when God says something, it is enough, obviously, isn't it? He doesn't need us. But I, I say it in the context that we've been discussing. God had said in Matthew 3.17, this is my son. But Peter is still required to say it in Matthew chapter 16. Our identity, your identity requires that you be confessional. And let me just tell you in advance, it is at a cost. 
a cost of studying, but the reality of being a confessional person is that you might also realize a wage would be drawn between you and some people you love dearly. Some people you really would want to associate with and you feel bad, but there's just this struggle of, say, sitting on a panel with them to answer Q&A without ending up with a very embarrassing situation where you are contradicting a fellow panelists in public. It comes at a cost. Oh, it would be beautiful for us to work with other believers in the NCCK, but for us to enlist there would, would just be very problematic at the level of conscience to us. Yes, Harvey. Morning. Yes, yes, generally when we stand and speak on behalf of God, when we become oracular day, when we are speaking on behalf of God, then the listener ought to look beyond us and see the authority of the gods, the God on whose behalf we are speaking. So yes, but the no side is when they refuse to receive what we are saying, we must not behave like the sons of thunder calling down lightning from heaven because we've been rejected. Okay. We find ourselves on our knees praying that God would be merciful to allow them to hear. Yeah. So, two, yes, yes I do, and then Felix. No, not all, not all reformed churches hold on to, even amongst the Baptists, there are those whom you'd see saying we ascribe to the Nicene Creed, a beautiful creed, but it's not as extensive as, as the London Confession of Faith. And then there are some that would say they are Reformed, in terms of name, but either they are, not, they are Reforming, or they are one thing in word, but in practice different. Yes, yes, Felix. Morning. Yes. Right. Okay. Let me be goodwill, goodwill, then say they are being sanctified, they are not yet glorified, and hopefully as they go on, the Lord is going to deal with those errors. We have a responsibility to be humble as we correct. Scripture does call us to do that in Galatians, that we don't be haughty 
as we correct those who are in error, lest we ourselves be ensnared. Uh, we need to also be contrite in the sense that these things are not an issue of intelligence. God in his mercy has allowed you and I to sit here today while we could be in some crazy church today defending the craziest of pastors. You know, you look at these big churches and the pastor is so crazy, even the unregenerate mind says, these guys are just sick. How can you continue going to that church? You know, we could have been there. We could have been there being pushed today to fall down. And uh, God has been merciful to allow us to be here. Yeah. So, number one necessity, our fundamental identity demands that we must, not we may, not we, it would be ideal, we must be confessional. Whatever confessional means, we must be confessional. A simple honesty demands it. As I already said, in trying to make a case for legitimacy of creeds and confessions and catechisms, those who don't, those who say dogmatically, no creeds are having a creed. Their creed is no creeds. So simple honesty requires that we have them. Uh, it is more honest to admit that you have a creed and state it clearly where all can see it. Brothers and sisters, unwritten creeds are some of the most tyrannical creeds around. Those creeds that are only in the mind of the pastor and you only discover it you know, when he needs you to act upon it before thinking about it, and they surprise you in public, embarrassing you, those can be very tyrannical creeds. And simple honesty requires that we put down those creeds so that people can read them and be able to say, I can't be a member at TDC. This thing about scripture is sufficient, uh, seems to be non-scriptural to me. So I can't be a member here. And that's why you go to our website, those things would be there. Our constitution and the confession of faith that we ascribe to. So as a pastor here, as I talk with visitors, who I suspect are cautious about us, part of my responsibility is to delightfully give them a ton of information about us so that as they think about what we believe, it's all there, okay? It's all there and they make a decision that is from a clean, clear conscience. I thought this I don't need to spend a lot of time on. Exposing error demands that we be confessional. Error often claims to believe in Christ and to believe in Scripture. 
last week I read for you some, some of the statements of faith. I could just read a few again. Um, and I, I say this not condescendingly, but it's just the truth that is out there. Um, Joel Austin, Statement of Faith. We believe the entire Bible is inspired by God without error, and the authority on which we base our faith, conduct, and doctrine. Yet I know many of you here who'd somewhat say something very similar, but who'd not partner with Jailos in ministry. Okay? Why? Because at times heresy claims to believe in Christ and Scripture. Um, I know, I know T.D. Jakes has been around. I could read one from Jakes Divinity School. The Bible, the Scriptures, both old and new, are the inspired Word of God without error in the original writings under the complete revelation of His will for the salvation of men and the divine and final authority for all Christians, Christian faith and life. So that sounds, we are together, isn't it? Until he says, there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect. We are together up to there. And eternally existing in three manifestations. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is not with him there? Okay, if you're not, if you don't know why the others are not with him, it's because he says, existing in three manifestations. Manifestations would mean, it's like you have a stage and a play is going on, and you have one person playing three roles. So he comes on stage as one person, goes backstage, comes back as a second person, the same, a different person goes backstage and comes back as a third person. So he says, God exists in three manifestations. But we believe scripture would present God as existing in three persons. A biblical defense Yes. Okay. Mhm. 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 Oh, oh. We are together there. That's a good biblical defense. So that you, uh, you know, when we meet people who are larger than life. <laughs> we, we tend to shrink at standing against some of the things that they stand for. But I think confessions would help us here. And so our confession would very clearly distill for us the doctrine of the Trinity. So that then 
somebody could say I believe in scripture, the same scripture you believe in, but uh, you really can't partner. Because that thing looks small, but when it comes to its outworking, it's very scary. You begin looking at the whole lordship controversy, which basically would say you, you can accept Christ as Savior without having him as Lord. And then you begin having something that Scripture knows nothing about, called carnal Christians. Those people don't exist. You're either a Christian or you're not. And, to, and the whole issue about second blessing. So you've experienced Christ. You're now waiting to experience the Holy Spirit. As if the three are... You know, and, and a lot of heresies can very easily play out of, of that. Scary things. It looks light on the surface but very scary in terms of its ultimate outworking. So requiring belief in Christ and Scripture has been insufficient to distinguish truth from error. That, I mean, requiring, I should have put only, requiring belief in, only in Christ as the only thing you look at, or requiring belief in Scripture only. Last time I read you the Doctrinal statement for the Mormons. They have 13. The Mormons say in statement 1, we believe in God, the eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. But we can't be Mormons. Why can't we be Mormons? Number 8, in their statement, they would say, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, as far as it's translated correctly. And I think we are with them up to there. But then they say, we also believe in the Book of Mormons to be the Word of God. At which point, we are parallel lines which we'll never meet, isn't it? Not even in the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So see creedal formulations in the New Testament. And there are creedal formulations even in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 6, uh, for here, O Israel, the Shama, that's a creedal formulation in Scripture. The Lord, the Lord your God is, is one. This is a creedal formulation, and, and they really help us in exposing error. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Again, are you hearing what was there in Matthew 3:17, Matthew 16, now again being confessed here, and being required as a confession? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. 2 John 7 For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. 
This is the deceiver and the antichrist. A creedle, a beautiful creedle formulation came out of these, these portions of scripture. To Timothy 3, 1 to 9, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of, the, of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as this. But they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. So those texts were very helpful in dealing with the Gnostic era. Gnosticism distinguished between fleshly Jesus and the heavenly Christ spirit. And that was an error at that time. It was a serious error at the time. And those portions of scripture would then be very helpful in dealing with Gnosticism. The earlier gospel confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is reshaped to rebut it. And the church now confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh. He is not just God, he has come in the flesh to deal with the error at the time. The error previously at, at the, and in Matthew 16, is some say he's Peter, some say he's John the Baptist, but now the error here with the Gnostics is he didn't come in the flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ, has, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but many deceivers would not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. So you, you see germinal seeds of confessions in the New Testament. And there are many of them, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism statements that you'd see in Scripture. Those are germinal creeds. They are seeds of creeds. They are, they are doctrinal summaries which compose creeds, they compose confessions and can be seen also in the faithful sayings or trustworthy statements in the pastoral epistles. For example, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Of 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a trustworthy statement. And then he makes the statement, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And then he goes on, uh, it is a trustworthy statement, look at that, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. And you begin seeing these germinal creeds in Scripture. This is a trustworthy statement. 
And concerning these things, I want to speak confidently so that those who believe God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Maybe I should pause here because I would like to, to give this more effort last, next time, God willing, retain. It talks about standard of sound words. Are you seeing that? So there is a standard, a pattern. And the pattern is a pattern of sound words which have been heard from him. The faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. God, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted in you, to you. I think I'll, I'll, I'll pause here so that I do this portion of, of Scripture justice. God willing, next time. So next time we continue making a case for necessity of creeds and then we look at subscription to, to creeds. Because we need to ask ourselves, where is it okay to just say, I don't subscribe to all of it, but I submit to much of it. So that then we can, uh, we can continue from there. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your mercies to us. You have been very kind to us in blessing the Church of Christ with many who have gone before us and who have uh, thought about the truths handed down to us from God through the Apostles. And in putting them across, they have done so with sound words based on the pattern that had been given to them. You have granted that we inherit such a beautiful heritage. Please protect us from pride that does not recognize the gift that you've given the church through history. Please Protect us from unguarded desire for liberty that hates authority and therefore does not want to submit itself to truths that others have been enabled by you to distill. And yet as we do this, as we think about creedal formulations and this kind of things, protect us from swerving into Romism that would begin equating the thoughts of man with Scripture. Help us to remain those who say Scripture is the supreme judge of men and of our conscience. Help us in these things, Lord. We kindly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.